we, we love to share stories of how God is at work. We call them uh, God stories here. And there are all kinds of different uh, things. You hear all sorts of stories, people from different backgrounds. And I tell you what, for me, I don't know if you'd agree with this, there's no boring story of how God saved somebody. Like every, every story is good, whether it's I was four and, and I grew up in a godly home and they led me to Jesus, or it's like, man, I was selling drugs and whatever else. I mean, it's all a great story. It's all a miracle. And so we love to celebrate just what God does with that. So today, um, we've got a story that's uh, kind of somewhere in between uh, those two extremes, I guess. This is Robert Horn. Uh, welcome, Robert. Uh, Robert is one of our community leaders. You can see his name and everything listed in the on-ramp. So if you like, uh, if you like his story, you go, oh, I, I like that guy. I'll you know, sign up for his group. Uh, but he's here not, not to promote his group, but just to talk about how God has worked in his life. So, um, so tell us, how did how'd God save you? All righty. Well, uh, like to, uh, my wife Sherry's in the back, and she's got the new little one we had this week, James. Woo! And... You're a trooper, Sherry. So that's, a, that's a God story in and of itself. And the other God story sitting next to her is my daughter, Ashley, who's seven, who's been a great help. And she was actually born, she was two pounds when she was born. So wow. just a blessing, our family Very cool. that God has brought us through. But I was raised in a Christian home and was uh, told the gospel at a very young age and said the sinner's prayer at about seven years of age. I, I think it was around in there. And then shortly after that was baptized and um, and so I, I knew of Jesus and, and had no doubt that Jesus was real and that he died on the cross for our sins. But um, there was really no fruit of that as I was growing up. And especially when I ran into junior high and, and high school, I just kind of lived a life of uh, drinking and, and partying. Although my parents, I think even to this day, would probably have a hard time believing that to be the case because I was very two-faced and, mm. and very good at hiding what was going on in my my real life versus uh, what was going on at home. And so um, um, through that process, you know, I used alcohol to give me kind of a personality because I'm very shy and timid <laughs> and uh, to break out of the box. And so people like to hang out with me and things like that. But it was all fake and, and uh, just uh, wasn't very satisfying. Um, shortly after high school, um, I knew my wife, Sherry, through high school and a little bit in junior high, and, but we really didn't like each other at that point of our life. So, um, but like, like just weren't like a thing or like really like didn't like each other? We really didn't like each other. I think our, <laughs> our uh, <laughs> first conversation, I, I think, what did you call me? Stuck up or something. I can't remember. But, uh, but anyways, a little later on, I was trying to hook her up with one of my buddies and ended up... Uh, um, out trying to get a bite to eat one night because I wasn't in the position to drive and she uh, um, told that she liked me so we, a couple of weeks after that we kind of hit it off and uh, been an item ever since but uh, during that time though um, we dated for about three years and and while we were dating um, she was of another belief and, and part of um, her convictions was that we were going to raise our children in that belief well I felt like I was a Christian, and during that time, I, uh, you know, I was sharing the knowledge of Christ with her, but like I was telling you earlier, it did, never really sunk to my heart then, so I don't really believe I was saved at that point. It was just the, the part of the process God had me in. But so, so you were, you intellectually believed, but it hadn't changed your life, right. but you were still sharing with her. Yes. So Here's what's true. Yeah. Okay. Isn't God cool? You can use yeah. somebody like that to, uh, and through that process and through some other people in Sherry's life, she came to faith. And uh, so that was pretty amazing that here I shared the gospel with somebody before I was a believer and she came to faith. And then later on, we got married and we had a, uh, I would call a typical marriage where we hated each other's guts for the first four <laughs> four years where we just <laughs> fought and fought and fought. But, but we... We liked each other in, in a sense, you know, we liked being together, but we just couldn't get along and we had our role reversed, you know, I was very passive and, and she was leading the household and needed somebody to step up and, and uh, God really started changing her heart and I just saw a definite light in her, which really started changing me hmm. and questioning who I was as a Christian. And then one night I was at work and uh, we were getting to uh, happening to work a long night, and and uh, we were getting ready to uh, prepare some stuff. We were going to take a 
some people out of power to do some work. And, uh, and I was sitting You, you there. work for a power company. I work for a power yeah. company, so. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so uh, so we've was, heard of other, we've seen movies with other night jobs where they take <laughs> yeah. out the power. I didn't yeah. <laughs> make sure you. <laughs> but uh, so we were, we were preparing and, and we had everything prepared and we were sitting there for a while and the guys at work found out I was going to church pretty regularly and they all started laughing and they thought that was the funniest thing. They're like, yeah, right, you know, you, you go to church, you know, and, and that night that really hit me. It was, you know, am I truly a believer because, you know, the word says you'll know them by their fruit and there was no fruit hmm. and, um, and that really shook me and, uh, and so over the next few weeks there was just a lot of wrestling and struggling and, and whose side am I on, you know, I'm living with a, my foot in the world and trying to pretend I'm this Christian person, which was just a, a fake, you know. And so uh, I uh, heard a sermon at church over in James 2 on, uh, um, I can't remember it, but uh, faith without works is dead, basically. And um, that really just hit my heart. And uh, from then I decided I was going to sell out and be for Christ. And uh, it was a long road after that, but God started changing my life, my heart, my priorities, and I uh, found myself digging into his word constantly and, and just really aligning my, my marriage, my finances, uh, just everything to, to uh, be a good steward of what God has given me in, in him. And, um, and then people at work started noticing a change in my life, which that was real validation for me that God was working because somebody came up and accused me of being some other religion, you know, that I wasn't. But I was like, wow, they actually considered me a religious guy. That's awesome. You know? <laughs> so, but anyways, ever since then, though, God, I still have struggles. I still stumble. And, and uh, you know, I love to fall in comfort zones. And, but, uh, but God uses a lot of different things to bring me back and to keep molding me. And so he's just been great through this process. Yeah, I love that. It was like once God really changed your heart, you didn't have to try so hard anymore. You just wanted to yeah. live for him. That's really cool. Um, let's, let's pray uh, just that thanks, giving thanks to God for that story. Um, Father, I pray uh, just with thanksgiving um, for Robert, and uh, thank you for the work that you've done in his life and the work that you're doing. Lord, uh, he's not, you're not through with him at all. Um, there are still uh, areas that I know you're, you're uh, refining in him and uh, ways that you're using your spirit and your word and the circumstances of life and the relationships he has with others to, to sharpen him and to make him more into the image of Jesus. And so I, I pray that that would continue. Um, I thank you um, for the way you would work, uh, where you would use the truth of the gospel, even through somebody that wasn't really believing it himself, um, to, to work in Sherry's life and then the way that you've restored and are restoring their, their life together. I pray for him um, as he is a dad, um, especially with his new baby boy, and, and, and pray that you'd give him grace there. And Lord, as he leads uh, his community, I pray he'd shepherd them and do that uh, well, that he'd do it in the strength you supply as we'll study today uh, so that you would get the glory. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Will you thank Robert? I love hearing that. I love Robert and Sherry and their love for Jesus. It's, it's so evident. Today we're going to take a look at uh, 1 Peter, so grab your Bibles and stand with me. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've got one of the black Bibles from the back, that can be found on page 1016. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11 today. Starting in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Says God's word. You may be seated. 
All right. Well, I brought something uh, with me today that's very, uh, very, very cool. I mean, I love it. It's, it's actually, um, believe it or not, I brought with, with me today to church this morning my most prized possession. It's the thing, if you were to go through all of our house, if you were to go in our garage, if you were to go anywhere, you would, and you would look around, you go, hey, what is, what's Luke's most prized possession? This, this is it. And so I'm going to need a volunteer. This is, this is very important. This is very special. I'm going to need a volunteer, preferably from this side since the steps are here. I need someone uh, to come up, and I need, I need you to help me as I show you my most prized possession. So somebody with, with some strength. This is, can't drop this thing, okay? You want to come, Jonathan? All right, come on up. Welcome, Jonathan. He's coming on stage. You, you can just go up the steps here. Jonathan is going to help. We haven't practiced this beforehand, so there's a lot of weight on his shoulders. Um, Jonathan, here's what it is. I want you to hold this up while I uh, kind of show everybody. Here you go. It's, it's a mirror, so be careful. You got it? Okay. Don't drop it. All right. So this, this mirror, uh, you got it? You sure? Okay. Oh, don't hold it one-handed, please. Um, <laughs> This mirror was given to us for our wedding, uh, Molly and I. We'll be married 10 years in December, and uh, my, yeah, that's pretty, pretty, I guess that's good. Uh, I'm happy about it. Um, and so this was a, a present from my parents that we got for our, for our wedding. It's this mirror, and as you can see, it was, uh, it was handcrafted, I think maybe by some Amish or somebody in Iowa that they got it made by. Um, and at the top, it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Many of you have something like that in your home. Um, you know, says Molly and Luke, uh, kind of a sort of a theme verse for our, our marriage. And then each, each uh, kind of section are things that they just knew we would sort of care about or want sort of in our, in our lives. And so you've got things on praying and singing songs of joy and raising family and loving one another. And I love this. It says, run the race from Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. And, um, and very cool. And then my favorite is this. You got it? You yeah, sure? Okay. Um, my favorite is this, uh, this one with the horse, and it's a horse there. It says Proverbs 21.31, and it says, uh, get your horses ready. Proverbs 21.31 says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. And so we were both college athletes, and so instead of before our games and stuff, instead of saying good luck, we would say, get your horses ready. Get the horse ready for the day of battle, victory rests with the Lord. And so they, they got that put on there, and... Um, I'm really nervous you're going to drop this. You okay? No, no, don't do it. So anyway, I wanted, I wanted to share this with you. This is obviously very special to me. I didn't really clean it off entirely before I came up here, but it is, it is special, and it hangs. If you come in our home, it's just right there in the front of our home. And um, anyway, so Jonathan, thank you for, for holding that. But before you sit down, how does it feel to hold my most prized possession? It's like I got your life in my hands. Your happiness is in my hands. My happiness is in his hands, he said. If you dropped it, how would that feel? I'd feel bad. Why? Because you're my pastor now. I can't do that to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not yours. Well, yeah. Right? Okay. Well, thanks. Let's put it down. We thank Jonathan. The reason I did that is not just because I wanted to show you uh, my most prized possession, though it is pretty cool, um, but it's to, it's to talk about Jonathan's responses to my questions. He was afraid to drop it. He was concerned because he knew that, that I had certain expectations tied into that particular object, and he knew that because it's not his, if he were to drop it, he's in big trouble. If it's his and he drops it, well, whatever, that's his. But, but if he drops it and it's mine, that's a problem. Well, today what we're talking about as we almost finish our series called Doctrine is this reality of stewardship. Stewardship, that God gives us things, but they're not ours. We're to be stewards of the things that God gives us. And that's, so that's what we're talking about. And all of us, uh, as we live our lives and we encounter uh, the people that God has entrusted to us and our family, the possessions he's entrusted to us, the time he's entrusted to us, the, the physical things he's entrusted to us, all of us should feel like Jonathan felt. I better be careful with this. 
I better not do the wrong thing with this because it's not mine. And I'm going to have to give an account for how I treat it. That's what we're talking about today with stewardship. Stewardship flows very naturally out of what we looked at last week, which was the idea of worship. We looked at worship, the idea that uh, the word worship means uh, to be bowed down, to be surrendered. And the idea was that all of God's people, in light of who God is and how God has rescued us from sin and rescued us from death through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross, in light of that, we are to be worshipers of him. We're to be people submitted to and surrendered to him, that our allegiance is to be to God and to God alone. Now, we give our allegiance everywhere all the time. We're constantly worshiping something. And the Bible calls us, as followers of Christ, to be worshipers of him. And so if he has our allegiance, if he has our loyalty, then it would follow very naturally that that loyalty would extend to the way we use our resources. And that's what we're talking about here today with stewardship God gives. Uh, The passage we looked at uh, was in 1 Peter 4. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Uh, But I want to give you a definition of the word steward. What are we talking about? Let's define some terms. When we say steward, what do we mean? When we say you're not an owner, you're a steward, what is that? Uh, Someone has defined it this way. A steward is someone entrusted with another's wealth or property and charged with the responsibility of managing it in the owner's best interest. So you're in charge with someone else's stuff, and you got to manage it. you got to take care of it in their best interest, not in yours. It says not to just use it. Uh, So, for example, if you work for FedEx or if you work for UPS, and you decide to pick up a box at somebody's house, and instead of deliver it to where you're supposed to deliver it and take it to your house, we have a problem there, Right? Like if you go to a FedEx guy's house and it's filled with unopened boxes and big screen TVs, you go, wait, okay, he's missed his purpose. He's supposed to be a steward, someone entrusted with another person's property and charged with managing it in the owner's best interest. And so all of us are God's FedEx guys. That's who we are. God has entrusted us with certain relationships, certain resources. We're to steward them well. Here's the big idea. If you don't get anything else today... The big idea is this. You are a steward, not an owner. Period. You are a steward, not an owner. Even my most prized possession is simply entrusted to me for a short time because I'm here today and God gone tomorrow. The Lord isn't, and everything he gives us is a gift. You're a steward, not an owner. Let's look at First uh, Chronicles 29. You stay in First Peter if you have your Bible open. Stay there. Um, we'll come back to that in a moment. But let's look at First Chronicles 29. This is a passage from the Old Testament where uh, King David has just received a bunch of gold and silver and timber and money and offerings uh, so that the the temple can be built. And he's not going to build it. His son Solomon is going to build it. And he's sort of dedicating this big offering. A few, uh, maybe a year and a half or so ago, we did a, a Beyond campaign to raise money to build this building. And on that day of celebration, when everyone brought their money, we offered a prayer to the Lord. And that's exactly what David's doing here. And here's his prayer. It says, therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So so listen, let's stop there for a second. That means that he's not just talking about stewardship of resources like money and possessions, but also intangible resources like honor and respect and power. Verse 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there's no abiding. 
O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. That is a great passage to help us see clearly. You're never an owner. You're always a steward. All of it comes from God. And I love just the brevity that he's talking about there. In light of the fact that I'm just a sojourner. I'm just passing through. The world is not my home. I'm just here for a short while. I'm here today and gone tomorrow. In light of that, right? You've heard the cliche. You come in with nothing, you leave with nothing, right? You don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse because it's not yours. You leave it here. We're stewards, not owners. And being a steward defines your relationship with things, right? If, if Bernie Madoff, right? You know Bernie Madoff? The guy who uh, developed this whole scheme and all these people lost millions and millions and millions of dollars. You know what I'm talking about? Bernie Ma- if he did that with his own money, who cares? But the outrage came because he did it with other people's money. It wasn't his. He was a steward of it. And he abused it. So stewardship defines our relationship with things. So I want to look at three specific things today that the scripture uh, teaches us were to steward specifically. We could look at all kinds of things and get very specific. But today we'll look at at three things that in light of the fact that you're a steward, not an owner, uh, three things. Number one, you're to steward your talents. Number two, you're to steward your time. And number three, we're to steward our treasure. So talents, time, and treasure. Let's look at these. And the, the first one really comes out of 1 Peter 4, what we just looked at. So if you have your Bible, again, look at it there in 1 Peter 4, starting in verse 7. Uh, remember, David said, part of the reason I know I'm a steward uh, is because um, uh, this life is short. It's temporary. Well, well, Peter has the same thing in mind here. If you look at 1 Peter 4, verse 7, uh, so before what we have on the screen, it says, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, life is short here. You don't know how much time you have exactly. Uh, Jesus could come back at any moment. There was this eager expectation by Peter that he would. Uh, There's also the reality just that life is short and and you could go at any moment. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. These are the two main commands in this passage. Be self-controlled and sober-minded in light of the reality that the end is at hand. I love the word, especially sober-minded. Sober-minded. Just think about that. I, I've been praying that lately. Lord, help me to be sober-minded. Right? When you're drunk or when you're under the influence of some kind of you know, drugs or other, other substance, it messes with the clarity of your thinking. Right? You don't have, you don't have clarity. You, you, you are compelled by other things that are irrational and illogical, and, and, and you're not clear-headed. The opposite is sober-mindedness. You see things as they actually are. You see yourself as you actually are. You, you see the world, in the sense, the way God sees it. And he says, in light of the fact that life is short, the end is near, Jesus could come back at any moment, in light of that, see things as they actually are. Be sober-minded. He goes on to say, in light of that, keep loving one another. Verse 8, verse 9, show hospitality to one another. This is all just the context. And then in verse 10... He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So be sober-minded in in seeing even your abilities, right? It says, verse 10, as each one has received a gift. A gift. You've received it. It's it's from God. It's not from you. It's not because you've earned it. Uh, It's not a wage. It's a gift. This is, these are gifts. These specifically are, are things, as he's going to go on to say uh, in verse 11, whoever speaks, uh, whoever serves, right? And all the different ways that you use these talents, these abilities, realize they're gifts. And then use them, it says, to serve one another. These gifts are not to be used to be just consumed for you or enjoyed for you or spent on you. They're to be invested to serve others as good stewards of God's varied grace. And you're, you're not an owner even of your abilities. What are you good at? Think about that for a minute. What are you good at? Oh, everyone in here is good at something. Even if it's mediocrity. <laughs> Some of you will get that in a minute. But we're all good at stuff. We're all good at different stuff, right? There's all kinds of things that, 
that, that Stan Jones is good at that I'm not good at. And there's all kinds of things that I'm good at that Jerry's not. And, and on and on you go. And, and we just would look around and there's stuff Jerry's good at that John's not. And, and, and we just do that. So, so we're all good at something. We feel weird talking about it, don't we? Like if we said, hey, would you stand up and tell everyone what you're good at? A few of you would love that opportunity. In fact, you take every opportunity you can anyway to tell us how good you are. But most of you would feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Here's why. You know instinctively that it's a gift. You know instinctively that this is something God has blessed you with. This is one of God's graces to you. That's what it said at the end of the passage, as good stewards of God's varied grace. The word varied there means multicolored. It's, it's the same uh, word that's used in James where it says to consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. So all kinds of trials you're to rejoice in, all kinds of grace you're supposed to steward. So the grace here he's talking about is not just the grace of salvation, though it includes that. It's all kinds of grace, all kinds of gifts from God. What are you good at? Are you stewarding it well? Are you managing it well? Have you been entrusted with this to, to, to serve others, to bless others, to honor the Lord? So here's a couple questions related to your talents. First, you've got to see, what, what are you good at? Uh, but with that, you've got to go, okay, how can you grow and improve it? If God's given you a gift, God has given you a talent or an ability to use to bless other people, how can you grow it and cultivate it and make it better? Uh, Paul it tells uh, Timothy in first, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God that's in you. Timothy, you have a gift, you have talent, you have, and we don't know exactly what it is, but you got to fan this into flame, improve it, grow it. There's a parable. Uh, called the parable of the talents. And the ta word talent there is totally different. It's, it means a monetary unit. It's kind of confusing. Uh, but the people who received a lot of this unit, who, or they all received the same. The people who then used it to invest it and to grow it receive even greater blessing. The guy who buries it and just goes, oh, I, you know, I didn't know what to do with it. His is taken away and given to the people that invested it. Same idea here. You're to grow this. I really like Andy Stanley's quote on this. He says, Your fully exploited strengths are far more valuable than your marginally improved weaknesses. Some of you are spending your whole life trying to improve at stuff you'll never be good at. Now, for sure, there are some weaknesses that if unaddressed will wreck your life, right? Like there's some things that just, you got to address weaknesses to a point. But, but the idea here is figure out what... What are the things that you're uniquely good at? What are the things within your organization or your family that no one else can do quite like you? And how can you develop that gift? How can you hone that? How can you grow that for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of improving the way you serve people, the way you work, the way you do business? Grow, develop, improve those strengths. They're far more valuable that way. So how can you grow and improve it? Another question is how can you use it to bless people and to honor God? Right, that's what it said, to, to do this, um, serving one another. And I love this. It says in verse 11, if you go back to 1 Peter 4, um, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So even the way you use the gift is to be done in such a way that says, God, I need your help. I need to do it in your strength. Why does it say that? In order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So part of being a steward is realizing that you exist to give glory and honor to God. How many times do you see somebody use their talent, their gift to bring glory and honor to them? How often do we do that? Your intelligence is not for you. Your creativity is not for you. Your risk-taking is not for you. Your kind-heartedness and compassion is not for you. Your musical ability is not for you. It's to bring glory to God and to serve and bless others. So how can you use those gifts? It's always strange in these environments to, to use examples of people that are in the room. 
because um, it's just it's kind of awkward over. But I'm going to do it anyway. So uh, that's all right. He'll, he's a big boy. He'll endure it. Um, and Brian Ring. Uh, Brian Ring is a guy. He leads one of our communities. Many of you know him. A unique sort of talent and gift that he has is, is in graphic design and in artistic stuff and in creativity. And so he uses that. He uses that for his employment. Um, he has a good job with it. He does some freelance stuff with it. He does all kinds of good stuff. He improves. He grows. Blah, blah, blah. But he sees himself as a steward of that to bless other people. And so one of the things that you'll see sometimes if you're out in the lobby, and I I love just kind of walking up and seeing this, um, Brian will be sitting there at a table surrounded by children, and he'll be, just with a pencil, drawing them a picture. And it's way better than any of us could do, right? But it just thrills the kids. I mean, they like, it's like they went to Disneyland. I mean, Mr. Ring drew me a, a horse, you know, I mean, they just go crazy. And, and, and he could use that gift just for himself. He could use it just to make income, and, but, but he doesn't. He uses it to bless other people. And bless people that can't give him anything in return. A kid, right? Not selling it to the poor kid for 50 bucks. <laughs> Though many of you, maybe that's a good idea. Some of these parents would be willing to probably do that. That's one example. You've got to think through your examples. I don't know all the stuff you're good at. You do. If you don't, you should. How can you grow it? How can you use it to bless other people? So you're a steward of your talents. Next, you're a steward of your time. Uh, how many of you just feel like, I got so much extra time on my hands. I just don't even know what to do with it. A few of you? Yeah, we got a fireman back there. He feels like that. He's the only one. <laughs> right? Most of us feel like, I just don't have any more time. And while you don't know how much time you have on the earth, the, the one equality that all of us share is how much time we have in a day, how much time we have in a week, how much time we have in a month. It doesn't matter if you're poor, rich, American, African. It doesn't matter. Anywhere in the world, you've got the same amount of time in a day and a week. It's, it's the one equal thing. And yet most of us just feel like, man, I just never have enough time. Uh, Vince Lombardi, the football coach, has this quote. He felt like that. He said, I never lost a game. I just ran out of time. If there had just been more time, we would have scored more points. We would have uh, done better. And we feel like that, don't we? Right? There's just not enough time to do all the things you need to get done at work. There's just not enough time uh, to, to spend as much time as you'd like investing in, in your wife or your children or your grandchildren. There's just not enough time to really pursue all the hobbies or to be able to go back to school and work a full-time job and, and keep all the balls in the air. Some of you are single parents, and you especially feel the weight of this. There is just not enough time. Somebody always feels cheated. And so we have to be stewards of this time. And we need to respond with the amount of time that we have to at least know, okay, here's what God's called me to do. Here are the priorities in my life. I need to pursue those I need to use my time, not just for myself, but for other people. And I need to be diligent in what I do. The Proverbs talk about this quite a bit. Proverbs 19 uh, gives a very funny picture uh, of of the idea of diligence and the opposite of diligence. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard in Proverbs is kind of the, the lazy person. The person doesn't use their time well, doesn't work hard, isn't industrious, isn't a self-starter. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back. This is the guy, right? This is like it's 2 a.m. and you're watching infomercials and there's like chips all over your chest, right? And you reach into the Pringles jar for one more thing and your hand gets stuck. And you're just like, never mind. You just sit there. That's what he's saying. Like, you reach your hand in the dish, but you can't, you're so lazy, you can't even bring it to your mouth. I just think that's a funny picture. <laughs> Another picture of the sluggard we get in Proverbs 13. It says, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. The soul of the sluggard, this is the, the person that's not a self-starter. They don't work hard. They don't manage their time. They don't steward it well. They want stuff. They want success. Uh, they they want to have a healthy family. They, they want to be able to lead their, their wife and their children in ministry. They want to be involved in community. They, they want it, but they're a sluggard. So they crave, but they don't work. They don't use the time. They don't do what they should. And so they get nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. You have time. God has given you time. 
And I think we need to change our paradigm on this to go from thinking about it as spending time to instead think about it as investing time. You are investing time. The time you spend at work is an investment in something. It's an investment in some kind of future. The time, moms, I know know a lot of you just do this, but those of you that are especially stay-at-home moms, I'll ask you, hey, what do you do? And you go, I'm just, a, I just stay at home. No, you, that's, a, that's a serious job, right? I mean, that's not like these marketing people and all these guys that work at Intel. That's a real job. <laughs> just kidding, Bruce. <laughs> that, I mean, but that's a, that's a serious job. And you've got to look at that as going, I'm not spending time teaching and disciplining and, and making peanut butter jelly sandwiches and and, and washing fingernails and wiping noses. I'm not spending time. I'm investing that time. There's a future dividend that's going to come from that. We invest our time. We don't spend it. And specifically, we need to invest our time in things that will last. Things that are not just here today and gone tomorrow, but things that have eternal impact. Here's a quote by C.S. Lewis related to this. Uh, ladies, many of you will relate to his analogy. He says, women sometimes have the problem of trying to judge by artificial light, how a dress will look by daylight. You ever had that problem? Looks good in the, in the store, but it doesn't really look good when you get outside. What happened? He says, that's very like the problem for all of us, to dress our souls, not for the electric lights of the present world, but for the daylight of the next. The good dress is the one that will face that light, for that light will last longer. You can invest your time here in all sorts of things that will be fruitful and rewarding here. And you can ignore the reality that there's daylight coming of eternity. How will it look in that light? So you're a steward of your talent. You're a steward of your time. Finally, you're a steward of your treasure. Again, you're a steward, not an owner. You're a steward of your talent. You're a steward of your time. And you're a steward of your treasure. You don't own this. There's the treasure of family. Right? If, if those of you that are married, God's entrusted you with a spouse to love, to care for. And you'll give an account to the Lord for how you stewarded that relationship. Those of you who are parents, grandparents, God has entrusted those children to you. They aren't yours. They're his. And you have to have that mentality. These are not my children. They're God's children. And therefore, I need to steward them well. I need to lead them well and love them well. I will give an account to him for how I use this. Many of the, the problems that, that parents have in raising their kids come from a, a distortion of they think that they're the owner. So they take everything so personally and every form of defiance is so embarrassing. And it's, it's this... It's this weight going, listen, it's, you're not the owner. You're just a steward. But we're also, treasure, uh, we're also a steward of our, our treasure of money, our money, our resources. You knew we'd get there, didn't you? Some of you are just going, oh, great. You finally got to the money. I knew it was coming. Of course, a preacher talking about money. Yep, here we are. We don't talk about money a lot, but listen, Jesus talked about money. And if you're going to live a life fully devoted to him, you have to have your money and your resources fully devoted uh, to him. And and it would be weird for people in the most affluent culture ever in human history to not think about how their resources should be stewarded. Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be weird? So let's talk about that. There's the treasure of money. And uh, there's really two errors, theologically, that people will get into related to money. Uh, One is what's called prosperity theology. This is the, the idea that Your desire to be rich isn't bad. God wants you to be rich. The problem is, you're just not doing it right. You need to trust God. And if you really trust God, and if you give a lot of money, and if you sow your very best seed into my ministry so that I can go fly on an airplane, I'm talking TV preachers now, right? If you you sow into that, if you invest in that, God will reward you, and he will make you rich, and he really wants you to be wealthy, and he really wants you to be healthy. That's prosperity theology. Not true. We'll talk in a moment. The, the most righteous guy ever, Jesus, wasn't rich. So eh, we lose that one pretty quick. But the other one, and this one is more subtle, um, and it's growing in influence. It's kind of a wave, I think, that's growing in influence throughout the church at large. And, and partly because uh, the prosperity theology is sort of cloaked in, in pretty obvious error. 
at least to most people. The, the next one, though, is it looks more righteous. And it's poverty theology. It's the idea that you're righteous because you don't have anything. That being poor is inherently more valuable to God. That if you have money, uh, you should just get rid of all of it and, and not enjoy any of it and be poor. This is the kind of theology that makes you feel guilty just for being American. Like, what, am I supposed to repent of my Americanness and move to, I don't know, Kenya? I mean, that's this poverty theology. And, and there's a tension here. We'll talk about this throughout the rest of our message. There's a tension here to be managed. But the answer is not poverty theology, or not poverty theology, or prosperity theology. The answer is to understand the, the way the Bible describes different types of stewards. It's not an issue of how much money you have. It's an issue of how righteous you are. What kind of steward you are with the money you have. That's the issue. So the Bible describes four different ways that treasure can be stewarded. Four different kinds of stewards. Uh, number one are the righteous rich. These are people who are wealthy. They have lots of money. And they have it because they've been righteous. They've worked hard. They've invested smartly. they got good counsel. And then they're not only righteous in terms of how they uh, acquired the wealth, but they're righteous in terms of how they steward it. They know that the, God didn't give them all this money so that they could be the FedEx guy who opens it up at their own house. God gave it to them so that they could be a blessing to others. God gave it to them so that they could, could be generous, so that they could be a, a source for God to, to bless. And so they're kind with it. They're open-handed with it. They're good stewards, the righteous rich. Some examples of this in the Bible would be Abraham, uh, Job, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. This is the rich guy who gave Jesus his tomb. Uh, Lydia is a woman who funded much of Paul's ministry, righteous rich. People who have a lot of money, they do good with it. The number two, uh, second kind of steward, is the unrighteous rich. These are people who get their money through, through cheating, through lying, through not paying income tax, through unethical things. And these are people who see fundamentally that they think all of their money is their money. These are people for whom... Why wouldn't you spend every dollar you make? Why would you give away any of it? It's mine. And so this is that kind of mentality, the unrighteous rich. Some examples of this are Laban, uh, Jacob's father-in-law. Some of you, if you know that story, you remember uh, he's a swindler, he's a liar, he's dishonest. The rich young ruler who loved his money so much that it kept him from being able to surrender to Jesus. Uh, Judas Iscariot is an example of an unrighteous rich person who uh, takes this money uh, in order to betray uh, the Son of God. So you've got righteous rich, unrighteous rich. Then next you have righteous uh, poor and unrighteous poor. The righteous poor are those uh, who, like Ruth, who we studied a few uh, months ago, or like Jesus, or like Paul, are people who live their life uh, in a way that honors God. They work hard, they're diligent, they're creative, they're industrious, and just God in his providence has not blessed them with large amounts of resources. But what they have, they realize is a gift from him. They steward it well. They give it generously. Uh, another example of this would be the, the lady who, the widow's mite, right? The lady who gives just the last of what she has because she realizes it's not mine anyway. This is the righteous poor. There's all sorts of examples of that. Jesus and Paul being uh, some pretty good ones. And then there's the unrighteous poor. These are people who are poor because of their unrighteousness. They lied. They stole but they got caught. Um, they're lazy. They are not diligent, right? So, so the issue is not rich or poor. God wants me prosperous or poor. That's not the issue. The issue is God wants you righteous. And the righteous are those who see themselves not as owners, but as stewards. That's the issue. Righteousness. The opposite of stewardship is consumerism. Consumerism is this big threat to it, right? And, and we are a consumeristic people. You can't live in our culture and not be somehow touched and molded by consumerism. Consumerism says everything you have is for you. Everything you have is for your pleasure. All of it should be maximized. So, so why, why wouldn't I keep everything I have? It's for me. 
It's for my pleasure. It's for my enjoyment. Rather than stewardship, which says it's not mine, it's God's. And I have it to be a blessing. Now listen, there's some big tension that's getting raised here. Are you, are, are you starting to feel it? Because the Bible says that every good thing comes from God. And that even the possessions and, and the money and the things that we have, some of it's meant to just be enjoyed. So there's a tension. Oh, how do we resolve that? Here's one way maybe to think about the tension. There are certain things you need, right? What are some things you need? Food, clothes, shelter. I would argue that in our culture you need a, some kind of transportation. Um, you go on and on. Once you hit the things you need, anything you get above that is an investment in something. Isn't it? So, for instance, if I, to use a really negative kind of example, um, if I need to tell time, I don't have to buy a Rolex. Right? Like, like when I buy a Rolex, I'm investing in something more than just being able to tell time. Um, here would be another example. This is one that, that we're battling. So just so you know, I'm feeling the tension in our life, too. Uh, we have two cars right now. One is in, in really good shape. The other one isn't. Uh, and it's actually, it runs well, but it, it looks horrible. Um, I call it Beats Walking. <laughs> That's the name of it. And, uh, and we're, we're considering, Molly and I are considering, we're talking about this with people that we know and trust and seeking input and going, we would like to sell Beats Walking and get a van. Uh, something that would have more room, blah, blah, blah. There's all kinds of reasons. Well, here, here's the reality. As I, as I think through this tension for us, do I need a van? Do I need a new car? No. I have something that beats walking. <laughs> so I don't need, I don't need it. So, so whatever I get, whatever we get above that need is an investment in something. Now it might be an investment in, hey, look at me and look at this great car and look at all these things. It might be in that or it might be an investment in, uh, here's more room so that uh, when we have family in town, we can all ride together. I mean, it might, there's all sorts of things, good or bad. You figure it out. But there's all sorts of things. You just realize I'm investing in something beyond just my need. And our, life, our lives are filled with that tension. You're, right, you're going to try to plan a vacation. You're going to try to figure out what kind of house do I buy? What would Jesus drive? You know, where, where would Jesus live? Where would Jesus shop? What kind of clothes would Jesus wear, right? And, and, and the two errors are to go, Jesus would buy the nicest thing because he wants you to be rich. And to go, well, obviously the best thing is to be poor because that's more righteous. No, no, no. The question is not rich or poor. It's righteous or unrighteous. And you have to solve the tension. I can't solve it for you. You've got to go to people you know in your life. You've got to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, here's attention. I don't know exactly what to do with this. Should I buy this? I don't need it, but I'd like it. And is it okay to like it? And should, should I give this away instead? Should I, should I keep this and invest it? For You've got to ask those questions. But here's the reality. You live in a culture. You live in a time where to even ask the question is countercultural. The assumption is, I want it, I want it now, I get it. Even if I have to pay for it later or not at all. That's the culture, right? And, and the, the lusts that you have, the, the, the drive that you have for that consumerism, driven by pride and driven by status and driven by prestige and driven by all that stuff, all that stuff, do you know what it whispers? Now. You need it now. It never says, Later later. You'll get around to it. No, it says now. And what I'm challenging you to do by the authority of God's word is to see yourself as a steward who doesn't automatically go, I got to meet all my needs now, but instead asks the question, God, this is yours. This is your money. This is your home. This is your car. What do I do with it? 
You are a steward, not an owner. We've got to evaluate our lives. And more than anything, you know what we need? More than anything, we need to be freed from the consumerism that so grips our hearts. And we're not absent of it in the church. This kind of meet my needs and I get what I want and I need it now, that is pervasive and we need to have our hearts reoriented in such a way where we're freed from it. We're instead of, of, of resources and money consuming us, owning us, we, we're able to step back and say, no, this is the Lord's. You know what we need? You know what does that? You know what frees the heart? It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's a gospel in a nutshell passage I want to share with you. I think it relates to this idea of stewardship. It's from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. It's a little ambiguous, even in the text, of is that Christ's love for us or our love for him? But the, the, both, both probably are valid in this case. The love of Christ controls us. If you've been renewed by the good news of Jesus, you're not controlled by, by your need for, to impress other people or your need to have a lot or your need to have pleasure or your need to have comfort or, or power or influence. You're, you're controlled by the love of Christ. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, Therefore, all have died. Here's what it's saying. Jesus Christ on the cross died for his people. And those people who see that Jesus has done that for them, when they place their trust in him, they die with him. They die to themselves. They die to their former hopes and idols and ambitions and lusts. They die to it. Because what they realize is Jesus is all I need. I don't need that stuff. I don't need that prestige. I'm dead to that. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves. You know what that's saying? That those who live might no longer live as consumers of everything. But instead for him who for their sake died and was raised. The good news of Jesus transforms you from being a consumer and a taker and meet my needs now and, and I'm angry if I don't get everything that goes my way and instead transforms you to realize this is all God. It's all a gift of his. It's all grace from him. It's varied and I'm called to steward it. I don't own it. You need the gospel of Jesus. We're going to take some moments here just a minute and reflect on that. Reflect on that truth and I want to invite you to, to pray and to consider um, how that applies uh, to you. Let's pray together. Um, God, um, thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, Lord, sometimes it, uh, sometimes it confronts us with, with things that are, are tough to think about. And uh, Lord, especially in our, in our culture right now where we, we always want just quick answers and easy fixes and thinking through difficult questions is, is hard and is boring and most of us just are too distracted even for that. Would you allow us, by your grace, to, to have some honest reflection? Would you allow those who are here today, who are, who are married, to, to be able to ask questions together as a family about how you're calling them to use the resources you've given them? Lord, I trust your spirit to lead and to guide to convict where necessary, to bring hope where necessary. God, you are God. You are, you are in charge. I, I don't need to strong arm or guilt anybody into anything. Lord, you are God. You're God over these people. And so I pray that they would submit to you and surrender to you as God and enjoy you that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to respond. Uh, we're going to respond to that, that freeing power of the gospel that nothing else can free you uh, but, but Christ. And so here's how we're going to respond here in just a moment. Uh, this changes up a little bit just in light of how our room's rearranged today. We're going to adjust how we respond today as well, at least for now. And uh, we're going to invite you to respond by singing in a little bit. We're going to sing loud. We're going to sing uh, rejoicing, knowing that, that God is the hero of our story. Uh, there's also going to be men and women in the back over your right shoulder. Um, and they will be there through the rest of the service. They're there to pray for you. They'll be there after the service. If you want to talk to somebody, 
If you want to be encouraged by somebody or prayed for, they're there. Um, There's also boxes in the back, those mailboxes, where you can give of your financial resources. Worship the Lord that way. Steward your resources that way. Uh, As well as the white connection cards. You can drop those in. We're going to take communion uh, together uh, today. And in just a moment, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. They're going to pass out the communion elements. We're going to hold them and then take it all together. Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is is a symbol. It's a symbol of the, the life and the death of Jesus, which is counted to us by faith, if we trust him. If we see what Jesus has done and, and say, yes, I, I, I trust you, then communion is something that you should celebrate today. Um, the bread represents Jesus' body, which was perfect. The cup represents uh, Jesus' blood, which was given because you weren't perfect. And so the ushers are going to uh, come forward. They're going to pass this out. Um, if you're a follower of Christ, please take the elements and hold them. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian or you, you, you're wrestling through it, you're not sure, just let, the, just let the elements pass by. If you need to get up and walk it down a little bit because there's a space in your aisle, feel free to do that as well. Um, but ushers, go ahead and come forward. Hold those elements. And then once everyone has them, I'll, uh, I'll lead us together to celebrate communion. night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. We might understand it as his perfect life given for us. Let's take and eat together. After supper, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He said we should eat and drink from it whenever we uh, gather. It's a way of him telling us that he's died in our place. 
to forgive our sin. Let's drink together. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your perfect life. Thank you for your necessary death for us. God, we don't deserve it, but it's been given to us graciously. God, we want to respond now. We want to sing joyfully now. We want to make a loud noise for the sake of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.